now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode four of our drugs season, Just Science interviews Dr. Carl Wolf from the Medical College of Virginia Commonwealth University to discuss his NIJ-funded research titled Liver Doesn't Die or at Least Its Enzymes, and other useful information discovered while evaluating the effect of sample preparation techniques on matrix effects and absolute recovery of opiates in liver tissue using UPLC-MSMS. Stay tuned as we discuss the challenges associated with post-mortem work in forensic toxicology to dispel incorrect assumptions associated with how the human body functions in deaths. Is your liver dead if the cells are still living? Listen along as we explore this question, novel psychoactive substances, and more on forensic toxicology and body fluids. This episode was recorded at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences 2018 annual meeting, where Carl presented the research at the NIJ R&D Symposium. If you missed his talk, please visit ForensicCOE.org to watch the archival. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. This episode, we're going to be continuing our season looking at drugs and all sorts of interesting aspects of toxicology, as well as other things relating to the incidence of drug use. Today, in particular, we're going to be talking to Dr. Carl Wolf from Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Wolf got his BS in chemistry from Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania. Got his master's in criminal justice with a forensic science option from Virginia Commonwealth University and a PhD in pathology with a focus on forensic toxicology from the Medical College of Virginia campus of VCU in 2005 and has been doing some work for NIJ in recent years looking at toxicology from liver. So one of the things that we're interested in is being able to do good post-mortem work in toxicology, but that can be kind of challenging, right? Yes, because you don't have a live body anymore, so all those processes people think of sort of in the clinical setting, which I do clinical toxicology also, as well as forensic toxicology, is the fact that in a human living body, you make assumptions of things that are going on. You know, blood flows and processes and all are happening and all those kind of interesting things. And then they stop, or at least you think they stop. The heart stops beating, the brain stops functioning, and we'll, you know, that's its own thing. But so your blood is not, as we would think, blood coursing through your veins anymore, and liver tissue should stop working. It dies. Isn't that what the common is? I just read an article here, actually, during the break, and the headline was, what does it mean to die if your cells keep functioning? Uh, even brain cells will continue to function for some period of time. After I just that. read that one, yeah, that they said they were responses in brains for like three or four or five days, something like that. Sure, just like shocking a frog, I guess. But And I'm not surprised that all sorts of chemistry, interesting chemistry, continues and the liver is quite an interesting little organ in itself. Why would we want to use liver as opposed to blood or a vitreous fluid is used too, right? right. Which is uh, kind of a good matrix. Why not just use vitreous fluid? Because vitreous doesn't work for all drugs. 
Okay. Works well for electrolytes, really small molecules like alcohol or even looking at some electrolytes. It's been used for that too. Even glucose. But, you know, once you start getting into larger molecules or the common drugs of abuse type things, most of those don't really show up really well. Some of them do, and they're used for that, but most of them don't. For the non-tox people at home, a vitreous fluid is eye fluid. It's the eye fluid, correct. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, liver gets around these issues? Or uh, how well? Liver is, so in the vitreous, you also have that diffusion out of the blood into the vitreous. So that doesn't just happen. There's not an equilibration like instantaneously. Uh, vitreous is sometimes considered to be between an hour to two hours behind or as a history kind of of what the blood was, say, an hour or two hours before. Commonly used in alcohol testing. Oh, okay. Postmortem and alcohol. So you look at the vitreous versus the blood concentration and go, does the blood concentration look realistic to what they're getting? Because blood is the question of where did you collect the blood sample from? Right. You know, is this a heart stick? Is this peripheral? Is this ephemeral or subclavian? And heart blood, like we said, when everything stops, then all those processes that are going on in your body that sort of separate or keep gradients of different things go away. And now you have diffusion of drugs out of tissue. If you have things in your GI system, like your stomach, then you're drinking and you pass away, you know, and you, it takes eight hours a day or so before someone actually collects a blood sample from the chest cavity. Well, now you have all that alcohol that's had in the stomach that's now diffused and becomes part of the blood. And now you may have someone with an elevated alcohol or other drug concentration that you're going, no, you know, this is not realistic to what happened at the time of death or the time we care about in forensic science, which is usually the time around death. Let me take a step back because you, you do clinical toxicology and you, do you practice forensic toxicology as well yourself? Yeah. So tell me about that, what you're doing professionally when you're not doing the research work. Oh, that's my day job. Is that your day job? Is actually That's my day to do job. some uh, forensic so pathology? Does VCU have a particular relationship with the medical examiners no. in Virginia? How does that work? Tell me no, we are doing. totally separate. I work actually for VCU Health. So we're the toxicology lab, which is part of the, the main hospital laboratories. Ours is a little different because most of the things we do can or do involve forensic applications. So we do all the pre-employment for the hospital. We do all the for-cause testing for the hospital. We've been an independent laboratory in the Commonwealth that does uh, DUI work and DUID work. So we get samples that someone questions the state's results or wants an independent testing of their blood sample that was collected for a DUI. They can send it to us. We've been doing this for almost 30 years now. So we do that. We do pharmaceutical testing. So we have a program at the hospital where we look at quality control and also diversion. Mm -hmm. Because healthcare providers, namely more anesthesiologists than orthopedics, have a higher incidence of drug diversion. So we test things that the pharmacy compounds, and we also test things from our ORs and other places that we're, I call it borrowing. Someone might borrow, but you know, they're not going to get it returned in a reasonable amount of time. So we may have an issue, and we do this because we're. We're the only lab in Virginia that I know, or at least central Virginia. We get samples from other area hospitals, send mm -hmm. them to us to test. And we do about 150 samples a month, just a small number. And then we do then the clinical. So when we do meconium testing, we do the things 
We do uh, compliance testing. We've been doing pain management testing since 2002. You all Not do the any longest. postmortem in your lab? We do postmortem mainly for our autopsy suite. So we have a residence program, and if they have postmortem to do and they want some toxicology, they send those to us. We do some work for outside folks who uh, more of the family member dies, and there's some question of, you know, that the medical examiner's office goes, this case has already been signed out, or we're not going to touch it because we don't have that question. We get samples from folks. We know local pathologists who will go to the funeral home or will who will do the autopsy and send things to us. I see. Have you done a lot of research re related to toxicology as well? Is, is the uh, NIJ grant something unusual for you? Or is that uh... This is the first time we've ever asked for money. Okay. Not, Did a good job. Was, you got it. That yeah. was, you know, <laughs> in the past we've looked at a lot of different things like this, but we've always done them sort of on the fly. Mm -hmm. Whatever's new on the market, because we have a Central Virginia Poison Center is located at the hospital, we get sample, if something interesting case comes up, they go, oh, we got a case with whatever, do you do this? Like when the N-bombs came to Richmond, back, came to the Virginia back in the 2012, 2013. N-bombs? I'm not sure I understand what you mean. The, they're uh, novel psychoactive substances. Okay. The new, they're really good. That's a really they're cool really name for the NPSs. That's N-bombs? Yeah. Is that N The N-bombs. Uh, 25I okay. was the one that came, and we were like one of the first labs to actually set up a method for doing this. And we've looked at metabolism because we had some students who, and some collaboration with some folks at the university. We've done some interesting things over time, but we've always sort of done it on a shoestring budget. Right. And this time we said, you know what, let's expand this to more than just looking at two or three applications of liver. We have students who come and do uh, internships with us and research. So we said, why not get funding for a year? And let's go from doing two or three assays techniques to looking at like 10, and which ended up being 12 in the end. But we were like, and let somebody pay us because it's not cheap buying all the kits and everything else we need to do this. And we were like, the federal government. Some <laughs> other people we know have gotten grants. We were like, oh, cool. We can write this up. We'll ask for a little bit of money. And we sent it in. And, you know, we were like, this is relevant because these techniques have come out from pain management which we do, and you know, people are just looking at better bang for your buck, I guess is the term I use. You know, how can we get testing in and out faster if we can automate it in some way? And I'm sure I've gone to conferences like Soft and that, and you see people present things about, oh, we did testing in this, but no one's really ever published how well these assays work for something beyond urine. But the question was, are people using these for post-mortem testing? because LCMS is the way to go, and if you can automate that, at least your lab's going to have a, an easier time at this. So we were like, hey, let's look at a couple, and then it was like, oh, well, what's out there? And we were like, suddenly it became, more, suddenly yeah. It, yeah, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then we said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. This will be a multi, we just want to do one year, a little project, and see how this works, because there was nothing published on this, and validation is the big thing now in, in science where I go, things we did 20 years ago, we do them the same way and they work, so what's the problem? And a friend of mine goes, no, it's, you know that it works, but it's to show other people that it works. So the question then becomes, use of liver post-mortem to be able to do it accurately and efficiently, cost-effectively too, right? And, and also to look at a wide variety of drug analytes, I assume, too. So yes. 
So which drug analytes? Were you focused on a, a particular set of classes, or did you look more broadly, or how did that work, first of all? So we had, we looked at opiates, not opi well, opioids. You didn't all look, opiates yeah. are opioids, but not all opioids are opiate. Like all yeah. squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. So we said we had just, as I was, this was 2015, and it was in the news, and if you listen to my talk from whatever, how we kind of got into the, into doing this, we were like, okay, what's going on in the news now? And we looked at, you know, statistics and things going on, and we're like, you know, natural and semi-synthetic opiates prescriptions are continuing to go up at a steady six to seven percent per year, but heroin's taking off. So cool, we have an assay for doing urine, an instrument method for doing, you know, morphine, codeine, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, oxycodone, oxymorphone, and six-acetylmorphine. We were like, we got an instrument method, and now we just have to do the sample preparation. This should be relatively easy. Sure. Right? Because we've done some work previously with brain, and we didn't have a problem. We had a student who did alcohols on the brain. Okay. And we looked at validating a method just a year before we applied. And so we looked at, you know, brain matrices, and we got lots of brains to look at. Does that have an effect on doing headspace? And what we found out is no. Mm -hmm. But uh, we were like, okay, this can't be that hard. And we were going to originally actually submit and do brain, and then we were like, no, no, no. The government's never going to pay us to look at brain. People do post-mortem liver along with your blood so that you can correlate the two and see if it looks realistic or not. Drug concentrations don't change that much after death in liver. Right. Whereas in blood, we have that whole question of post-mortem redistribution and contamination and things like that from you know, the GI system. So. so when you got into this, you discovered you're going to have and, and like you said, you went up to eventually 12 different sample prep techniques. So what are the different sample prep techniques that you looked at, and how do they distinguish themselves from each other, other than the fact that they're sold by different companies? We looked at the three basic principles. We know Because we knew there was no way we could just grind up liver and shoot it on an LCMS system. Right. That wasn't going to happen. So, you know, what... Because everything's all complexed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're not going to shoot the, even your homogenate supernate, because... I've had enough people plug up my systems doing other things. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I've like clean, sample cleanliness, mm -hmm. as people talk about. You know, you either clean your mass spec more often, which means downtime, or you do spend a little more money and do sample preparation and clean the sample up, and then your instrument, you don't have to take it down as often. Because you decide where, you know, where the money goes. So, you know, there's three basic principles. You look at filtration. We were looking at standard liquid-liquid or phase separation, which people have done for years. And then we were like solid phase extraction, because it's not new, but there's new techniques and new ways to automate that on the market. So those were the three. And then we just kind of went through and said, okay, you know, what manufacturers do we have some kind of at least experience with that are out there that, you know, not promoting anyone, but just the fact if you understand and you know where people are coming from, you feel a little more comfortable using their techniques mm -hmm. than having somebody new on the market who goes, oh, I got this great thing, and you're like, I've never used it. I don't know how it works. It's not brand loyalty, it's just... Oh, yeah, and I'm used to that. I mean, the difference between alchemy and chemistry is just that one is more scientific, but that sort of, that, that kind of lore aspect of it and trying to, what do you trust and what do you... And, yeah. uh, I mean, it's still part of chemistry because there is a certain instinct I think people can have. So that's what we looked at. We said, okay, you know, we have a traditional liquid-liquid uh, extraction technique that we've used in the lab for years, and it's what we used for doing our opiates when we did them by GCMS. Whether we were doing urine, blood, liver, serum, mm -hmm. any kind of tissue, it worked really well. 
But when you go to LCMS, you have all kinds of new th issues that you run into. Matrix effect is the biggest thing, ion suppression, ion enhancement type thing. So we said, okay, we have a standard method we've used, why not? And then we were like, and we have our new method that we use for urine, so that was the uh, water's microelution plate, which is a solid phase extraction. It's miniaturized, and it's a cool 96 well plate, and it's like minimal sample size. This is great. And then we were just, we just sort of went through, you know, we were like, okay, what else is out there as far as filtration? And there's some phospholipid depletion plates out there. We had talked to a few salespeople at meetings and gone, this is what we want to do. What do you recommend from your company? And you know, we looked at Biotage, the PLD plates. We looked at the uh, HLB plate from Waters. I mean, the whole list. And we said, okay. And we looked at the Biotage SLE because it's kind of like a supported liquid extraction. So mm -hmm. it's supposed to be like liquid liquid. Let's see how they compare. And we had been using the UCT, United Chemical Technologies, purple columns mm -hmm. for DA, clean screen DAUs for years. I mean, years for doing some other assays. So we were like, and those guys have a published method or a manufacturer's method. So it's been around. How can it be bad, right? Right. So and we went. All methods that were designed for liver extraction, well, or were they? Were they? Did you adapt some things that were not necessarily for that application? We, if the manufacturer had a method that said this is how we would recommend you do liver, mm -hmm. then that's what we used. If they didn't, we used their opiate assay and said because that would be the logical thing if I was working in a lab and someone said, hey, we have this technique and we want to do this analyte, the last thing I would be looking at is matrix. I'd be like, okay, you've got a technology and you've got a drug class that you want to look at. Do you have a method for it? And you go, cool. Let's see how that works with a different matrix. Mm -hmm. Let's use what's out there. Otherwise, like I said, we used whatever their opiate method was for doing, we did the um, sample preparation the same for the homogenizing the liver, but then we took the supernate and treated it like it was serum, blood, or urine, and then ran it through their procedure. Sure. And saw how well it worked. Because, like I said, if I was thinking of it, that's what I would do. It's mm -hmm. funny because it's, I hear two different things here, right? I hear one where you are thinking about the chemistry to some extent, but the other part of it really is we're going to survey the field. When you're doing 12 different techniques, you're pretty much seeing the entire field and just seeing, you know, it's just an empirical study, right? What's working, what isn't. And uh, I would think the hard part, though, is making sure you've got those methods down well. That's very hard to do when you have that many different things. It is. However, most of the techniques, though, if you look at them, are basically, at least in their field, are very similar. Mm -hmm. So solid phase extraction is basically you condition the column, you add your sample, you wash it to get rid of any potential interference or matrix effect, and then you elute your drugs off. So, you know, the question is the solvents used in different manufacturers is different or maybe the buffers or something like that, but in essence, it's still A, B, C, D, E. Phase separation or liquid-liquid is kind of the same. People have been doing it. Filtration is what do you do? You prep the sample, you pour it on top of the thing, and you either use pressure, vacuum, or pressure to push it through, or you let it sit there and run by gravity. Mm -hmm. And then you collect the stuff out of the bottom, and you either run it on the instrument, which I think was most of those, or you evaporate off the organic solvent if it has one that's going to interfere with your testing. But the sample techniques are basically the same, or very similar. So sure. it's A, B, C, D, E. You just It's a question of what do I add as A, what becomes B, and what becomes C and D.
Most of the things I look at, we have students who come in and do projects. Where do I start them off at? Because I can go blah, 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 blah. And this is what you need to do. And they just kind of look at me and go, where's the procedure? And you go, I'm like, <laughs> and it's like, stop. Let they don't have explain. the feel for it yet. Let me explain, yes, here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. And this is what each step does in the process. Oh, so that, you know, you're, that comment is like in forensic science, they tell you if you're testifying to a jury, you know, I'm educating this. Mm -hmm. As I do that quite often. And even a judge or anyone with a degree in the courtroom most of them still don't understand science, so you have to step back to that, well, they say eighth grade-ish type education and, mm -hmm. and educate them on what you're talking about. One of the other issues here is that there's a lot of different ways to judge a technique. I mean, there's three, four, five, six different kinds of figures of merit that you could look at these different techniques True. on. So how did you assess the technique specifically? So we have first originally said, oh, we've got a method. We had the UCT purple columns out there. They've been out there for a while. We've used them for things and they work well. We were like, you know, these guys are sort of considered the gold standard of testing. At least that assay is. It works for lots of drugs. Mm -hmm. So this is 2015, 2016, so you got to go back. You know, don't judge the past on the present. And we said, we'll validate a method and we'll go through the whole swig talks and we'll use some FDA because we like some of the stuff that's in the FDA bioanalytical guidelines mm -hmm. for looking at and you know let's do that first we'll validate that assay and then we will go look at the rest of them and see how they compare to what the gold standard we shouldn't call it the gold standard but the gold standard to some kind of base and after we started working on this along through it we were like uh, we have a problem <laughs> Where we came up with matrix effect, process efficiency, and recovery was the fact that matrix effect is if your method isn't cleaning up your background, then you've got a problem. That's you know, the right. question of do we let the instrument get dirtied up and then clean it every so often, or do we try to clean up the sample? So that was like matrix effect. It's a well-known. And then recovery, we've been doing recovery for years, which is now called process efficiency. but. You fortified some non-extracted samples and you added some, sam some to your matrix and you ran them through and you said, look, this is how much I got back. Mm -hmm. You know, people have been doing that for years. Now it has more termed or more scientific. And so we were like, let's look at how well our assay is working and are we recovering what we're supposed to be looking at? Because if we're getting fairly poor recovery, you know, if you can't get 50% out of your assay, so most people will go, no, that's not really a good assay. Well, we have some drugs we've actually worked on where we have 1% recovery because they're so hard to test in the Opioids. matrix. We, Opioids no, or other, other things? Okay. Other things. We have one that we had a student spend six weeks on working on, and the best we could get was a 99% ion suppression. Okay. <laughs> we had some assays that the drug didn't even separate or we couldn't even detect it. It was not working very well. So we were... We were like, okay, we definitely know what bad is. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, you know, those are the three easy things to do because it's just a simple set of, it's one simple experiment mm -hmm. with three different sets of data or three different samples. And you, once you analyze your samples, extract them, prepare them, analyze them, then you just let the spreadsheet figure out the values for you right. to do the math. So you just copy the data in and dump it in, and it does all this wonderful 
calculations and you go, look, does it work or not? And so we were like that simple. We didn't care too much about linearity because we do, but that was kind of the afterthought. It's like if the, if the method isn't going to clean up our samples and give us some recovery. What does it matter how what does it, it is? Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. So sure. that was, that's where we came from when we said this is something that we can do fairly easily in our time window. So All of them should be of, of nominal efficiency, right? Because they're at least being sold commercially, you would think. One would hope. But not necessarily. <laughs> so tell us what your findings actually were from the program to some degree. At least you don't have to get into it. So everyone who's listening should know, at least, but I'll tell them just to make sure. This is all from our research symposium at the American Academy of Forensic Science. All of the talks from that symposium are archived on the FTCOE website, and it will be linked from the podcast page for this particular recording, your talk, which apparently was very entertaining Wonderful. yesterday. So they can get into more detail of the, of the results, but please tell us what, what the results were. So basically, we went by guidelines and said, okay, matrix effect, we would like it to be plus or minus 25%. And recovery and process efficiency, we would like it somewhere between 75% and 125% when you do the math. That's a good goal. That's a goal, not the plan. How many of the 12 did that? <laughs> None of them did for all six analytes we were looking for. Oh, okay. But what we saw was, and we make this, because again, liver is an interesting matrix. It's not like doing urine or blood or mm -hmm. serum. It's, it's got its own issues with it. So even when, you have, when you're taking the supernatant? Even when you were, yes. That's confusing to me. I don't understand the chemistry or biology of what's, what you're saying. Why so would that liver, matter? You know, what's your liver? That's your detoxification organ yeah. for your whole body. So it has lots and lots of different things in there. There's some fats in there. There's some salts in there. There's uh -huh. various biological constituents, endogenous compounds. Okay. And all that the supernate is, is the protein portion is sitting in the bottom of your tube everything else that's any somewhat uh, water-soluble ends up in your supernate. Right, okay. So you're running all kinds of things. Right, and, and all of which has some activity and, and might have some interactivity with the uh, sample preparation. We're looking at. Yeah. Yep, mm -hmm. sample preparation. You can overload. You know, those, all those assays, they talk about carbon loading and things like that. But it, basically, it's, you know, the thought of once you put too much stuff on it, it doesn't work optimally anymore. Were you able to do some work in terms of actually fundamentally understanding some of those interactions? Were you able to elucidate any of that? No, of we were, we really didn't have the time, you know, we could have expanded this, but first of all, we were just like empirically going, okay, what assays work and what assays don't, is what kind of the research came down to. It would be nice to move that further, and some of them we probably could have modified a little bit, but was not designed to do pure research and method development on these different techniques. We were just going, what's on the market? How are these people telling us, the manufacturers telling us to use these? And does it work exactly how it, they're telling you to? And I think this is very important stuff. And, and, and we sometimes congratulate NIJ too much on some of this, but I won't on, in this case because the, the problem being the average forensic laboratory doesn't have time to go through 12 different methods to figure out which one's going to work or not. Correct. <laughs> yeah. They're going to pick one, and they're going to go, oh, my friend uses this one, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, the old yeah. comment, I have friends who work in, for manufacturers and used to work in research and stuff, and they talk about methods that have been published and things that are approved by the government for use, the EPA or the FDA. You go back and actually look at it, and someone goes, why did you use that column? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the chromatography never looks that great. 
And the guy goes, because it's the one we had in the drawer or was on the instrument at the time, it looked sure. okay. We weren't going to spend days or weeks figuring out how to make it work. It's what was available, and that's how most labs work go. What's published? Can I put some references in my procedure mm -hmm. that says, hey, we at least looked at this and said it works. Somebody's published this and maybe some case reports or something. I mean, because pure research, like we're doing now with some NIJ stuff, there's n we're the first to publish on a lot of things going on. And Everyone's so. a fan of something. Like, I'm the fan of the Baltimore Orioles, but I'm also a fan of solid phase extraction. I'm an old Maryland native. That's where the Orioles thing comes from. But, I, but I'm definitely a fan of solid phase extraction, too, maybe yeah. because I'm a simple guy. And so my feeling is, like, if you design the solid phase appropriately, that it's going to be good at sticking onto some stuff and not so much others. Right. And so tell me that solid phase extraction worked best of the three families of methods. Are you going to ruin my hopes even there? No, it worked, as I said, you know, it's not, nobody worked ideally or mm -hmm. perfectly for all the six opiates we looked at. But what we saw was good correlation between concentrations. So we looked at a low concentration range and a high concentration sample. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, if the assay is going to work at both ends, then we should have good linearity. We would expect to have good linearity and we would expect to have reliable concentrations or that we would determine from our samples. Mm -hmm. If the upper end and the lower end didn't look the same, how do you know where the point is in the middle where they're all equivalent? So that's kind of why we did, we ran them at two different concentrations. And we repeated all these things twice mm -hmm. because it was the question you said, you know, how do you know you did them right? Well, we followed the manufacturers and then we were like, okay, we're going to repeat this again because who knows? Maybe we weren't holding our mouth correctly one day, or it was snowing outside, or it was too hot, or you know, all the things why you do validation over multiple days you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So we ran them all twice just so we felt comfortable going. If it didn't work, it really didn't work on either of the two days that we ran them. Yeah, so so the solid phase worked nice, and the, the filtration, some of those worked really nice too, but it's, you gotta look at more than just the numbers and go, oh, it didn't meet the ideal. It's sure. with anything. People look at numbers and go, oh, the instrument gave me an answer. And it gave it to me six digits. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what about the liquid liquid? Those did not work as well? Our traditional method sucked. Okay. <laughs> as we would expect, the Biotage SLE Plus worked really well. It's good at removing the matrix effects. We had good recovery and process efficiency on our codeine hydrocodone, hydromorphone, oxycodone, and oxymorphone. And our morphine, though, was low. Mm -hmm. It was about 30%, but it was the same at both concentration ranges. And so someone might go, ooh, numbers, that's not good. And I go, but you then you have to remember the chemistry of the compounds you're looking at. Morphine is a zwitterine. So that means that it's never uncharged. Mm -hmm. So you have two functional groups that cause lots of problems when you're trying to do extraction. So in, in a liquid liquid, you're trying to do phase separation and you're trying to make things un, unionized so they'll go into the organic phase and not into the aqueous phase because water is polar. So it likes ionized compounds. Well, in a zwitterine, you never reach, the best you can get is 50% mm -hmm. where it's charged and uncharged. So 30% recovery on those is Perfectly really good. good. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. believable. It's, you know, it's very work. It's very workable. But someone might look at that and go, no, I don't want to use that. And I'm like, 
but it worked well and because it was consistent. It's reproducible. I, exactly. Yeah, exa that's the main issue. I mean, I would. I think in terms of what my own feelings would be, I think um, getting rid of the matrix effects would be number one to me. I like a clean instrument. I think it's important. I yeah. think number two would just be consistency, the reproducibility Correct. of whatever that, as long as the recovery were reasonable, right? Yes. So if yeah. you don't understand the chemistry, you know, I understand that you have to set guidelines before you start because you don't do statistics afterwards and then figure out mm -hmm. if it worked or not. You do that up front and say, this is what we're, go you know, this is what we want to consider acceptable. But you also have to be able to step back, reevaluate, okay, none of these work. So, you know, what becomes the gold standard then of acceptability? Sure. So are there any other particular prep techniques that really stood out as meeting the metrics and a good compromise? Yes. Let's see. We looked at 12. And actually we had a, we ended up with 12 because we had a resident who actually thought it was kind of cool some of the things we were doing and actually spent a month with us. So we looked at the uh, UCT, the XL column, which is a no sample prep, uh, no column conditioning. Set up your sample. There's no methanol wash. There's no buffer, no nothing. You dump it on. You wash the matrices off, and away you go. Nice and and that worked fairly simple. You cut out two steps. That we had consistency across our ranges. And, you know, we were happy with some of the recoveries and the process efficiency were in the upper 60s, but that's close to 75. You know, what becomes 75? Is 74 and a half 75? We're not grading on a sure. college scale here. So, you know, liquid-liquid didn't work. We said the Biotage, Isolute, SLE worked except for morphine, which was low, but then it was consistent. So we were, like, happy with that. We were expecting to see that. Uh, we looked at the filtration. I mean, those were the SPE techniques. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> filtration techniques, the process efficiency was really consistent, like with the biotage, the PLD, or the phospholipid depletion plate, I believe is what it's called, but matrix effects bounced. But, you know, overall, the method worked. Recoveries were a little bit low on a couple things, but again, we were like, they were consistent, and that was what we were happy with. The Waters Oasis Prime HLB uh, plate, we saw the same thing. We got a little bit of ion suppression, but our overall, our process efficiencies were acceptable to us. So that worked out well. The Waters Ostroplate, again, same things. Matrix effects were not consistent, but overall process efficiency was, and that's what we're kind of looking at. And those were really what worked, I guess, the best. If we want okay. to say the be best is such a relevant term. So have you published your methods menu? Where can people find it? No, it's, so we have, we just actually finished this all up in December. We pushed the NIJ funding to the end, but all of our work we finished the beginning of December. Mm -hmm. So we're now, got invited to come do the talk yesterday, and now we're working on putting it together. And we've presented it, and I have two students who are presenting their work on Thursday. Uh, one's an oral platform and one will be a poster session. And now mm -hmm. we're going to move forward and write this all up, at least what we saw, mm -hmm. you know, and how we did this. Now that you've, your appetite has been whetted for doing research and, and to work in, uh, with NIJ, I hope you are looking at some other ideas and you come back in to, to, to do some more work. We got a grant, what, one of only 50 grants this year, to look at stability in cannabinoid-infused products or edibles or metables. Right. So we've already done some brownies. Mm -hmm. We did some brownie work, and I presented that. And actually, we have the only paper I know that's published on how to prepare matrix match calibration and control materials for high fiber content food. Okay. We've done a publication. We've done some work on high sugar content. 
uh -huh. the gummies are chews. Right. And now we are working this spring on chocolate. Right. How to get all very popular <coughs> matrices. All very popular edibles. dark chocolate. So we've been making dark chocolate. We figured out what we're doing. We have actually on that, and we've got a pretty good recipe down. Our next thought is to is to fortify this chocolate and then figure out how to get lipids out of a lipid matrix. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. THC is a lipid and fat. <laughs> but I can't wait to find out, and I'm sure you're going to figure it out, and we're going to be able to have you back on and talk about that project. That's a, a food is too, wonderful. Yeah, it's <laughs> too it's much. food. It's great. Yeah. this is actually in, this was fun too. Opiates was uh -huh. fun, uh, and liver because we learned a lot of things. And you know, the other thing with that is, go back with that is, um, so you know, techniques. But the really the thing we kind of learned one, when you set your criteria of what you consider acceptable. You have to keep an open mind going, I might have to tweak this to get everything I want. The other thing that we found out is that we need an isotope labeled matched caliber internal standards. Mm -hmm. So basically deuterated, we ran deuterated for each compound we were looking at because of the fact that matrix effects were so different between each. Even though you go, well, chemically, they're all pretty darn similar. Yes, they are, but they're not. Because you have phenolic groups, you have ketones, and you have uh, amine groups, and you've got alcohols. So it's all a little different on the molecule, and each one acts a little bit different with each technique. Hence the so, art. Yes, hence the art. So. Well, that's all very good. We've been with Dr. Carl Wolf from Virginia Commonwealth University talking about art and Science, science and very much enjoyed having you on the podcast and look forward to seeing you again talking about some edibles well thanks for inviting me it was enjoyable next week on just science we will discuss the post-legalization effects of marijuana on colorado law enforcement specifically focusing on driving and traffic topics with jennifer knudsen Colorado's Traffic Safety Resource Prosecutor, and Glenn Davis, the Highway Safety Manager for the Colorado Department of Transportation. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>